Well, uh, good morning. It's uh, great to see you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Daniel. Um, I actually uh, spend most of my time down at uh, Older Road, um, but actually I've been given the last three months off, which is serving, which has been wonderful. So normally I'm leading worship, preaching, anchoring meetings, uh, part of the leadership team over there. I've had the last three months off, and this is my first week back. So um, it's been good. Um, I've got two children, one of them's back there, one of them's um, at my grandparents, and it's a little bit of a funny morning because my wife's down at St. Mary's Church for a dedication, we're kind of rushing around, so um, I'm on my, on my own, uh, married with two children, um, love church, love Paul, and this morning we um, hit the ground running in our series in the book of Daniel, and so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to page 884. Um, last week, uh, Matt kind of did an overview of the whole Bible. When I saw his notes, he had like all the chapters. I was like, how is he going to get through there? But if you've, if you've not listened to that talk, um, it would be worth before kind of next week getting logged on to the website, signing up to SoundCloud, and just kind of saying, I'm going to listen to this. It's a good overview of what we're going to be thinking about. It highlights some of the major themes. And this morning, we're just going to hone in on one of those themes, which is what it means to live a life of integrity in Babylon. We're going to split our text up into a number of sections, uh, so we're going to uh, stop as we go along, and so we're going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure of the house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. The start of Daniel 1 doesn't give us much of an insight into kind of the political, the social, or the military uh, uh, kind of situation at the time of Jehoiakim's reign. So I thought it'd be helpful just to take a step back and put it in context of some of the things that we've been learning about here at Gateway Church over the last few months. Just a, a few weeks back, we were uh, looking at the Exodus, kind of 1,400 years before Jesus entered this world, and we learned how that Moses led God's people across the Red Sea, ultimately out of slavery and into the land they called the promised land. And in that land, they, that God established his people, they established his kingdom, and the kingdom of Israel was established. But it wasn't all kind of uh, fun and games for them. It didn't go the way that perhaps uh, they intended. Some 
500 years or so later, the Jewish kingdom actually split in two. You had uh, northern Israel and southern Judah. Our story actually comes along this line of kings in southern Judah. Israel was destroyed, and actually uh, Judah didn't follow much afterwards. And, And one of the kings in Judah was a king called Josiah. And he was a little bit unique in terms of his kingship because he was actually good. He listened to God. He turned to God in his time of need. And it says that he was a strong and upright king. Now, Jehoiakim, he was nothing like his dad, Josiah. In fact, Jehoiakim had two sons. One's already dead at this stage in the story. And we meet Jehoiakim. And basically, he is a godless tyrant. It says that he lives his life in a kind of a cesspit of sin. He was, he was nothing short of a puppet either. He was a, appointed by Egypt, the king of Egypt at the time, to rule over Judah. But he was paying money. He was paying tribute to them. And he, was doing, he wasn't doing his own will, God's will. And when Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army come to Jerusalem and besiege it, it doesn't take much for Jehoiakim to switch his allegiances, to say, hey, I don't want to die here. I don't, want to, I don't want to lose my life. I'm going to start paying tribute to you, Nebuchadnezzar. You, you can be my king, and I will do what you ask me to do. You see, instead of turning to God in his time of need, he turned to the, anyone who could save his life. It was all about his own self-preservation. Instead of, instead of giving everything to Judah, He gave everything to Nebuchadnezzar in order to spend his own life, instead of being willing to give his life for God. We also need to understand something about the Babylonian conquest strategy. So they're there, after the job was done, the siege was over, what is it that the Babylonian king wants to do? Well, he takes the most gifted, he takes the most qualified, he takes the most handsome, he he takes those who have the best opportunity to learn Babylonian culture, and he takes them away to his kingdom, and he trains them. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was this. He says, if I take away everyone who could possibly ever lead Judah again, who could ever lead God's chosen people, how are they ever going to be a military force again? And so he takes away their leaders in order to make his kingdom better. He left Judah weak and made Babylonia strong. So let's pick up in verse 6. It says, This Among them who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the law of the king who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men and young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this. 
and tested them for 10 days. Now, Daniel was a, a hostage, for want of a better word, living in Babylon. But on the face of it, it seems okay for Daniel. On the face of it, it seems it wasn't that bad. It, it, him and his fellow Israelites, there was probably more than just the four of them there, they were to study for three years. They were to learn the lifestyle, the, the culture, the, the history, the heritage, everything that the Babylonians knew and believed, they were to learn. And they were, they were educated by the king's best people. They were given food appointed from the king's table and wine to drink. They were given a place to stay. It was like going to the best university to study the best degree, but without the student debt and without the crummy, crummy digs you have to live in. They, they were living a good life. But this is all part of Nebuchadnezzar's plan. He had handpicked the best in order that they might lead Babylon well that they might serve him rather than serving the God of Israel. The whole journey of, the, of these men was actually to become Babylonian first. And it, it happened in a number of ways. They were given a Babylonian education. And some of the things that they would have studied would have been pretty dark. It would, much of their education would have been about divination, divination and predicting the future. They would have studied astrology, how the stars aligned to kind of give some kind of prophetic insight about what was going to happen in the future. They would have studied something called harispication, which is a big long word which I had to look up what it meant. But it basically is the study of animal entrails. And so they'd have taken, they'd have taken these animals, they'd have sacrificed them to all the different gods of Babylon, and then they'd have cut them open, and they'd have seen how these entrails kind of flowed out onto the ground, and they'd have used those to kind of study about what might happen about the future. They'd have studied the, the rites of purification. They'd have studied various incantations and exorcisms and any other form of dark magic which was kind of part of their culture. King Nebuchadnezzar gave them a full-blown Babylonian e education. It was pretty dark stuff. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to undermine their religious heritage, the very things that were important to them. In fact, the, your name in that culture was, was an important thing. The name you were given had a meaning. Obviously, my name, Daniel, um, I know what it means. It means God is my judge. But he gave him a new name, Belshazzar. Bel protects life, one of the Babylonian gods. To Hananiah, his name would have meant the Lord shows grace but he got Shadrach under the command of Aku, another Babylonian god. To Mishael, who is like God? He only got a subtle change, Meshach, but who is like Aku? To Azariah, the Lord helps. He gave the name Abednego, servant of Nebu. The king was attempting to change their religious loyalties, and he did so by changing their name. He wanted them to not be uh, carry names that reference the king of Judah, the God that we know and that we love, the one who had rescued them out of Egypt, but instead to give them new names, to undermine their religion, ones which talked about the gods of Babylon. And finally, he wanted to undermine their culture, 
And how did he go about that? Well, it was the food that he gave them. He gave them food which was unclean, which hadn't been uh, slaughtered in the right way, which he, the, the guys going there would have known would have been unclean. And he said, you're going to eat what I tell you to eat. And everything about the trajectory that Daniel and his three friends were on was not about them becoming the best. It was about them becoming Babylonian. He was trying to make them to reject their education, to reject their religion, to reject their culture and your heritage. And Daniel was a hostage. He was taken there against his will. He didn't get to decide when he went out and visited different places. He was there to learn. He was there to serve. He was a stranger in a foreign land. He was a captive in hostile territory, and this wasn't his home, and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't his king, and yet he was doing everything he could to to be part of the culture. Gateway Church, we're living in Babylon right now. We are strangers in a foreign land. And actually, our culture would seek to undermine our religious heritage, would seek to undermine what we know and love. One, our culture would seek to strip us of everything that makes us a child of God. It seeks to subvert our worship. This is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do. He said, I don't want you guys to worship the God you used to worship. I want you to worship my God. And we're living in Babylon, and our culture would do the very same thing. It would seek to direct our worship from anything other than the God that we know and love to worship anything around us. It would seek to make God small and the world big. And this cultural attack, the the world around us, can, can leave us feeling battered and bruised. It can perhaps leave us feeling dejected and like, I just can't win. I can't, I can't do anything about the world around us. The culture's changing in such a way. I just can't be like God wants me to be in this place. And, and sometimes we can feel beaten up by it. And I think there's kind of two extremes of, of, of ways that we can respond. One of them is that we have become Babylonian. Perhaps it's difficult to see where the culture starts, stops, and you start. You've just become Babylonian. There's nothing distinct about you now as a Christ follower because you just do everything that the world offers anyway, and you're, you're living that kind of life. You engage so much with the culture that the boundaries have become so blurred, but it doesn't matter what's going on that you're willing to take part in anything. We don't want to be Babylonians. We want to, we want to be God's people living in exile. We have to love Babylon, but we don't want to be Babylonian. And that's an important thing to understand. Secondly, second response, if that's on one end of a spectrum, you've just become like the world. The other end of a spectrum is you've completely deserted Babylon. The world's such a terrifying place, and the culture is so, uh, so bad and so, uh, so far from what God wants that you've just buried your head in the sand. You don't want to feel like an outsider or a stranger, so all you do is you associate with Christians only. You come to church only. You, you have no kind of engagement with the culture around us. So we've deserted Babylon. And cultural rejection is almost as bad as becoming Babylonian. Because God says this, Jesus said this to us in Matthew 5, said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, 
How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light, a lamp, a light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Gateway Church, we need to be aware of our culture. We need to be aware that it would seek to direct our worship away from anything other than the God that we know and we love. It would want to make God small and make the world big. But we don't want to run away from our culture. We have to be salt and light. And we do that by engaging with it. That's why on Tuesday, people went down to the beach and started clearing up the beach because it's a way of engaging with our community, saying we love the place we live. That's why we went out and voted. That's why we say, I'm going to trust that we're going to elect leaders who are going to lead our town. And that's why being part of our, our democratic society is so important. And Daniel did an incredible job of living as an exile in Babylon. He didn't run away from the culture. He actually looked for genuine opportunities to influence the city that he was living. You see, Daniel said yes to many things. He said yes to a new home. He said yes to a new education. He said yes to a career in politics. He even said yes to a new name. But then Daniel chose to say no. And what is it he chose to say no to? The food that was being offered to him from the king's table. He had resolved not to do this. And by doing so, he puts his life on the line. He goes and he pleads with the guards, the chief officials. He negotiates with them, and ultimately he finds favor in their eyes. And he's given this 10-day experiment, granted a trial run. You eat what you say you're going to eat, and we'll see what's happened after 10 days. And, and this experiment wasn't without its risks. The, the chief official knew that if, if Daniel and his mates looked worse after 10 days, he was probably getting the chop. Daniel was almost certainly getting the chop. His friends were probably getting the chop. Probably his other officials were probably going to lose their lives as well. It was almost certain death. Now, Daniel wasn't going vegan because it was the morally right thing to do. He was rejecting the food offered to him because it was what God, the God he still knew, the God he still loved, had commanded of him. You see, even though Daniel was an exile, even though he was a foreigner living in a strange land, Daniel found a way to live by God's standards in a culture that didn't honor God. He showed incredible intelligence. He negotiated rather than outright refused he managed to walk this tightrope of partial cultural assimilation without religious and moral compromise. And that's the one that we are called to, to live as well. The stakes were high. Daniel's career, his life, and the life of those around him was on the line. And yet, by God gra God's grace, Daniel remained composed, maintained his integrity, and if we read on over the next few weeks, we'll get to, to chapter 6. There's a lovely verse, verse 4, which just says, They could find no grounds for complaints or any corruption because he was faithful. No 
corruption was found in him. It says this in 1 Peter. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, that's us, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of any, doing, of any wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That verse could have been easily written just about Daniel, but it is a verse for us. Daniel chose to reject the food, not because he didn't like it, but because he knew it would defile him, that it would contaminate his relationship with God, that it would drive a wedge against everything that he knew and believed. And we need to reject those things which would do the same to us. We need to reject the things of our world that would seek to divert our worship away from God, away from our King and heaven. And for most of us, this is not going to be about food, although for some of us it might be, but about sin. Daniel could have so easily have believed he had no alternative. Let's think about his context. He was taken there as a hostage. He was taken against his will. Everything about his trajectory was designed to undermine who he was and what he believed. He could have just sat down at the table and ate the food like all the other Israelites. Probably he did. He could have made that choice. He could have felt that there was no other way. You know, sin will do the very same thing to us. It will tell there's no other way. Look, everyone else is doing it. There's no other way for you. It wants to convince you that you have no power over it. Sin wants to tell you that you are weak and that you are frail and it will be the victor. But that is not the case. And it can creep up on us without even realizing. In a few weeks' time, the children that I teach will sit exams, uh, year six exams, and the pressure as a teacher to get the best results for these children is actually is, is pretty immense. We have our head teacher, we have our local authority, we have government statistics, all of them kind of weighed down on the teacher in that room on the day they take the exam. And you know, I'm, I'm not invigilating this year, but in the years gone by when I'm walking between those desks, it's so easy to, to look down and to see a wrong mark. You think, well, that mark could make the difference. And the temptation is just to, to crawl, sit, kind of kneel down at a desk and say, can I, can I read that question to you? And all you're really saying is, hey, guys, you got that question wrong. Let me read it to you in the hope that you'll, you'll have another go. And that temptation to just bend the rule, just to adjust the rule slightly, to do something which isn't in the official script, is so easy it can creep up on you. Romans 6 says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let, let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. 
See, this is not about legalism. This is not about a set of rules or standards that somehow, if we just behave in the right way, that we'll somehow attain God's standard. This is about our heart. This is about our heart, which was designed and made and crafted to worship God, to give glory to Him. And the more that we know God, the more that we want to give glory to Him. The more we understand who he is, the more that we want to see him. So the big question here has got to be, when we find ourselves up against sin, tempted to do something that is wrong, we've got to ask ourselves the question, is what I'm about to do going to limit my ability to relate to the God that I love? And if the answer to that is yes, no matter how hard it is, we've got to do what we can to run after God first. Verse 15 of Daniel 1, let's just continue reading there. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So God took away their choice food and their wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better. Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in, the, in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel was ultimately rewarded for his faithfulness to God. He found favor in God's eyes. He looked great. He was fitter. He was healthier. He was stronger than all those around them. He was brighter. He learned the language quicker than anyone else. He could understand more than anyone else could understand. He, he knew the culture. He was part of it. And when he, his time in education is over and he starts work, there is no one like Daniel. He is the best of the best. Living free from sin was the best health tonic that Daniel could take. Yet the story could have been really different. After 10 days, Daniel could have looked worse. He could have looked weak. He could have looked bedraggled. He could have looked like um, everything had fallen apart. And actually, it could have been a, a nasty end of his story. It could have just gone, and Daniel looked worse, so they killed him. But it, did, it didn't look like that. You see, this is not about food. This is not about how Daniel looked. It was about his faithfulness. It was about giving glory to God, even in the midst of adversity and affliction. No matter the cost, not to gain favor or special privileges, but because we have a God who is deserving of our worship. We have a God who is deserving of our praise. How much better is it to retain our integrity in the depths of affliction than retain our iniquity in the heights of prosperity? Daniel lived with integrity because even though he was an exile living in Babylon, he gave everything 
to the God of Israel first. 1 Corinthians 13 says this. It says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. Do it all for the glory of God. Jesus is not after perfection because we cannot attain it. He wants your story to be one of faithfulness. He is after a people who live their lives with integrity. He understands that we're going to get it wrong. And he wants us to say yes to many things around us. He wants us to engage in our culture. But he wants us to say no to anything that would break down his relationship. That he, he paid such a great price to, to, to win back. He wants us to say no to anything that would defile us. That would to, to wrong us. To risk saying no. Even when the culture around us would say, just say yes. And Daniel is an incredible living example. He's an, he's an example of how to live, isn't he? He's a, he's a, he's a kind of a role model. Um, but even in the most extreme situations, Daniel survives. He, he flourishes. He, he learns all the things he, he needs to learn and engages in their culture. But this is not a story about how to be like Daniel. Daniel was handpicked. He was the best of the best. He was the most intelligent. He was the, the brightest. He was the most learned. He had the best aptitude. He was the, he was the best looking. And if I'm honest, even though I share his name, there's nothing I can do to be like that guy. He, was, he, he became like leader of a, of, of, of a whole nation. He was the one the king turned to. It's just not going to happen for me or for you. Living in exile, we live in Babylon, we live in exile, we are weak, we trip over, we, we cross the lines, we, we cannot be perfect, we cannot even make it to Daniel's standards, not because we can't be Daniel, but because we are actually sinners, and we cannot attain God's standard. It's not about Daniel's standards, this is God's standards. And what we need is someone bigger than Daniel, someone greater than Daniel, someone to help us live like him, to help to show us what it means to live a life of integrity. What we need to do is not to look to Daniel, but instead to look to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who came to this earth, a place and a culture that was totally contrary to his own. Jesus left his home and his father in heaven, and he lived as an exile in this world. He was a foreigner in a strange land. Like Daniel, Jesus learned our language. He understood our cultures and uh, our thoughts, and he was faithful to his father to the end. Jesus maintained his integrity. So even then, when he was falsely accused... And suffering great opposition, he responded with humility and kindness. Jesus was tempted but said no. He didn't cross that line. Jesus engaged with anyone. He talked to everyone. He, he befriended the weak and the lost and the broken. And ultimately, Jesus was obedient, even obedient to death, dying on the cross so that you and I could be free. Jesus is our living example. He's the one that we should look to. Through Jesus, we are no longer 
a slave to sin. We are no longer bound by the, the trappings of sin, and we have the ability to live free from sin because we have been set free, free by the power of Jesus. Ephesians 2 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. For some of you who's here this morning, you might never have crossed that line of faith. You might have never have said, yes, I'm going to say yes to Jesus for the first time. That could be your story. You're essentially a Babylonian living in Babylon. And actually, you've got a decision to make this morning because God has something greater for you. He is giving you an invitation to become a fellow citizen with all of God's people. An invitation to no longer be called a foreigner to God, but instead to be called a friend. An invitation to have your sins, all the stuff you ever thought and done and said wrong, an invitation to have all of that washed away, and instead of being an outsider in God's kingdom, to be called son or daughter. An invitation to have your life trajectory transformed by the power that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross and to be one of his people made right through the power of Jesus. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to ponder over the next few minutes what you feel that God may be doing in your lives. Am I being called to respond this morning for the first time? to say yes to Jesus, to cross that line of faith and say, hey, I don't want to be an outsider in God's kingdom. I want to be a son or a daughter in the king's house. Of course, Jesus is, is much more than our example. He is our strength. Acts 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And if you are here this morning and you are finding living life for Jesus tough, that's normal, but you are not on your own. If you are finding that Babylon is getting the better of you, know that Jesus is going to give us all the strength we need to live in this moment, in this temporary moment here as we pass through this place until we are eventually called home. And instead of saying yes to sin, we need to do it with all our strength and say, God, would you help me say yes to you more and more and more? We cannot do life without him. We cannot be salt and light in this world without turning to him in every moment. And as we come into land this morning, I want us to, to see something of the big picture, which is perhaps easily missed in this story as we've unpicked just a few points. The big picture that God was sovereign throughout this whole story. You see, God allowed Jehoiakim to fall to King Nebuchadnezzar. That was God's doing. He allowed his people to be defeated by a Babylonian army. God orchestrated Daniel to find favor in the eyes of the temple guards, the chief officials. It says that God ordained that. 
God provided for Daniel's need. He gave him incredible health and fitness and intelligence so that he was different to everyone around him. So even though that Daniel was a foreigner in Babylon, he was not a foreigner to God. Even though you are a foreigner in this world, until one day Jesus calls you home, you are not a foreigner to God. God knows you. He knows your name. And he calls you son and daughter. And he says, I am with you. And I will be with you until I either come again or you die. And I call you back to my house. And so some thoughts about how we should move forward with living a life of integrity. Firstly, put your confidence in Christ. Don't, don't rest on your own strength. Don't think that you can do it on your own. If, if Daniel would have, could have thought he would, could have done it on his own, I'm sure the story would have been written down slightly differently. Um, we are not as intelligent or as skillful or as great as Daniel, but, and so if we try to do it our own way, ultimately we just end up getting it wrong. Don't forget that God is with you no matter how horrible the situation you're going through is, and he will always be with you. Put your confidence in Christ. Secondly, don't isolate yourself. Don't be a bunker. Don't say the world's so bad around me. I'm just going going to ignore the world until eventually Jesus calls me home. That's not what God's called us to. He's called us to be light and salt in this world. We are supposed to make a difference to to Ashley Road, to the roads around us. We are supposed to, to go out and preach the good news of Christ because there are people whose ultimate trajectory is separation from God. And we need to do something about it. We're called to be different, and we're called to kind of rub off on those around us. For those of us who are parents, we're called to prepare our children to live as exiles in Babylon. We need to teach them how to to live Christ-centered lives in a world which will do everything they can to distract them from worshiping God. Thirdly, live with excellence for God. And I know you're all at different stages of life. Some of you will uh, be at university. Some of you will be at work. Some of you will be retired. It doesn't matter where we are. And actually, it's amazing that in this room, we have every generation represented from next door, from our youngest to here with some of our oldest. It doesn't matter where you are. We are called to live a life of excellence. We are called to give glory to God. So as a teacher, I Teach as well as I can in my own ability because by doing so, I give glory to God. If you're a politician, we we do that to the glory of God. If you're a hairdresser, you do that as best you can to the glory of God because we want to live lives which are excellent for God. Fourthly, say no to things that can defile you. Things that can contaminate you. You know, we can... We can adapt really well. We're really, made, we're really good at adapting to the things around us. But we have got to have lines that we don't cross. We've got to set the standards. And it might be when you open your fridge and you, you take that milk and you sniff it, you think, oh, that milk's gone bad. You don't just carry on and put that on your cereal, do you? And think, I'm just going to eat that. We don't do that. We have to throw it away, say no to that, and get the new milk out, which is fresh. And God will call us to, to think about some of the things in our lives which perhaps have been messing up our relationship with God. Maybe it's hanging out with those people. Maybe it's that conversation at work that you just, rather than choosing to walk away or rebuke,